I told the first service, I said, that is just mean. Preach on humility and then put a video up right before you come up. That's just not right. But uh, what an honor to be here and to be able to share in our time of worship this morning. We're going to be in John 13, as Brian said, and it's a great joy to see him uh, there in Central Asia and uh, not the least of which it means I get to preach here. But uh, normally on Sunday morning, if I'm not preaching somewhere else, Kathy and I are right here among you somewhere. And this is our church home. We love it. I remember years ago before we left, people saying, are, are you going to go to Providence after you retire? So it would depend on who the pastor is. <laughs> uh, yeah. And Brian was the pastor. I'm going like, I'm in, all in. He is my pastor. Don't you love Brian? He's just awesome. Let's come on. Give it up for Brian. This is just a joy to be able to serve with that brother. Now, I'm going to look at this passage with you this morning. We're supposed to look at verses 1 to 17, but there's so many different sermons in that passage. We're going to kind of increase the odds that we'll get through in time by cutting out a middle section. There's a portion in there that talks about Jesus interacting with Peter and Peter resisting the washing of his feet. And so we don't have time to go into that this morning. That's a whole nother sermon. Uh, come back at two. And we'll, no, I'm just kidding. We will, we will just forego that piece. But let's read verses one to five and then pick it up again in verse 12 through verse 17. And hear what happens as Jesus begins to wash the feet of these men that he's walked the dirty roads of Palestine with for all these years. And let's just see what, what the reaction is from our hearts as we look to see who it is who's doing this and why he's doing it. So let's read the word of God. John chapter 13, beginning in verse one. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end or to the uttermost. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Then down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet, and put on his outer garments, and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, a very familiar text, one even unbelievers and people not even that familiar with the Bible know about this text. Lord, it would be very easy for us to glibly assume that we know what it's about. I did. I've preached from it so many times. And to prepare for this message this morning, I'm so thankful that your spirit makes all things new. And this passage is filled with with truths and applications that that really impacted me as I was preparing yet again. So, Father, there are folks here this morning who need this message as much as I did. And we thank you for the invitation issued by Jesus, your own voice, saying, come, follow me, do these things that I've shown you to do. So, Lord, speak, and we will give you praise for what you're going to do how are you going to say it? 
and what the outcomes will be in our lives as a result of our time here for Christ's sake. Amen. Just start off with a question. Do you know your rights? I think that's an interesting question because in the culture, every day it seems like we hear somebody saying, I know my rights. You know, and then they follow that up with a demand of something that they think that they have a right to or that they think they have earned or deserved. And, and so they're very strident about that. And, and we as a nation constantly are dealing with rights in conflict with one another. And so we, we see it happening in all kinds of places where in education, we have a right to teach this way or in government, I have a right to govern this way or in, in uh, homes, I have a right to be served by my wife or by my husband, or I have a right for my children to treat me this way or the children say my rights are such that my parents are violated. You know, and we hear it over and over again. What's distressing is when we hear that language starting to, to show up in the church. I have a right to my way, the way I like it, and it better be that way or Jesus is going to be sorry. You know, and you're thinking, no, 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 no. Here's the deal. Jesus wants us to understand something. When we say yes to Christ and we invite him to forgive us of our sins, we confess that we are sinners and we ask him to come and change us from the inside out. We're surrendering our lives to him. And when we surrender our lives to him, something happens. We are, according to the scriptures, crucified with Christ and then made alive together with him. That means, just follow the logic of this for a moment. If I am dead, what rights do I now have to a proper burial? <laughs> you're, you're welcome to be able to fulfill that right right next door, Raleigh Memorial Garden, wherever you want to go to be buried. But you have a right to a proper burial, but you don't have any other rights to demand. And the scripture says in Galatians 2 that, that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live by faith in the Son of God, I live in the one who loved me, delivered himself up for me. So it is Christ who is living in me. So whatever rights I have are connected with the rights Jesus has. In this passage this morning, we hear Jesus saying, I know about rights and I give them all up to be able to wash the feet of these guys. And one of them is a betrayer, a treasonous rebel who is going to give me up and I'm still washing his feet. Have a right not to, but I choose to. Why? Because he had told him earlier, the son of man did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as we come to this passage this morning, we want to understand what this is about. Why is Jesus giving us this model? And then why is he insisting that we, as followers of Christ, follow him to the low places of serving? We all consider ourselves servants after a fashion. If we get to define it, we're there. But is our definition of what it means to serve consistent with Christ's definition of service? Well, this passage begs the question. Actually, it begs three questions. And we're going to try to answer all three of these questions in the course of our study of this passage. The first question is simply this. Who is he who bows his knee to serve in such a lowly way? Who, who is this? Is it a slave? Is it a servant? Is it somebody who would be expected to do that? So that's the first question, who is he? Second question is, why would he willingly engage in such humiliating, perhaps even described as demeaning behavior? Why would he do that? If he really is who, we answer the question number one, 
If he is who that is, then why would he do this? And the third question is the application of all this to our own hearts. What, what does he want us to do? What does following him to the low places actually mean for us? So how am I supposed to process this as a follower of Christ? And when he invites me to come and follow him, what does it mean in terms of how I'm supposed to respond when I see from a human perspective that following him to serve others is going to violate some right that I think I have not to have to do that? Well, let's, let's look at it together. Who is he? Who is this savior? If, if that question is answered properly and we understand who he is, who's kneeling before them, then it's gonna help us really be able to process whether or not we want to follow him or not. Because if he's just another Joe Blow who's serving somebody, well, a lot of people ought to serve people. We treat people that way. You need to serve me. You need to take care of my needs. And Jesus, you need to do that as well. But if he is more than just somebody who's doing a serving job, then we may need to reconsider. This is one who reigns forever on the throne of the universe. What? He is the one who reigns forever on the throne of the universe. So the one who's crawling around on his hands and knees in a second floor walk up in Jerusalem on the night of the Passover feast is the reigning sovereign Lord of the universe. Now, let's package that in such a way that we can kind of get a couple of handles on it. First of all, he's the king who has an everlasting kingdom. He has an everlasting dominion over that kingdom. And that kingdom is a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It is an indestructible kingdom. Back in the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, verse 14, he's talking about the son of man, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes. And it describes him this way. He says, to him, the Messiah, was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should, what? Serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. He's the king of everything. He's on his knees crawling around the floor in the upper room. The king. That just seems highly inappropriate, doesn't it? It just doesn't seem right. Well, that's a part of the picture he wants us to understand. Because not only is he the king with this indestructible kingdom, this glorious dominion, he is the creator of all kingdoms. He is the one who has established all things by the word of his power. Hebrews chapter one, verses two and three. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. All right, so let's let your mind just think about that for a second because sometimes we tend to tame Jesus. Jesus, it's only fitting that Sweet little Jesus boy, you model that servanthood thing. Good for you. Way to go, Jesus. That's what messiahs do. Hold the phone. He's the king of everything. And he is the creator of all that is. The floor that he's crawling on, he created all the materials that came into the composition of that floor. The feet that he's washing, he created the people 
on the top end of those feet. The, the dirt that's on those feet, the dust, the mud that was gathered as they were coming together to this place, he created all that dirt. The water that he's using to wash their feet, he created the water. The, the city and the surrounding mountains, he created those. The stars above those mountains, he created. And now we see this one. Who is he who's crawling around on his hands and knees? Man, I'll tell you what. If it doesn't choke you up a little bit, maybe you were not paying attention. Maybe we have tamed Jesus too much and it made him manageable instead of majestic. Who is he? The king, the one who reigns sovereignly on his throne. Yet, yet, he kneels to the floor in this upper room. He who just before he became flesh was seated on the throne in heaven, is now crawling around the floor on the second story walk up in Jerusalem. Go figure. <laughs> this is who he is. This is the one who has come to do that. And so therefore, we, we understand a little bit more of what's going on. He chose to actually take that low place. He chose to serve the very ones who owed their very existence to him. He chose to do that. And so in Philippians chapter two, Paul's trying to help us grasp some of this in a doctrinal way where he wants us to get our minds wrapped around this. He says, listen, you need to have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ. What, what is that? Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being bound in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He chose to do that. This act of kneeling should shock every knowledgeable person as to who he is, that he is actually doing this. And so there has to be in our minds some reason for this. Well, it's just a model to follow. We need to just be imitators of Jesus and do that part of what he did. It's got to be more than that. This is not behavior modification. I haven't been serving this afternoon. I'm going to start serving. Instead of yelling at my kids to come bring me something to drink while I'm watching the ball game, I might get up out of my chair myself this afternoon. Bless your heart. Aren't you the servant today? Instead of, of letting my wife clean up the kitchen after the meal today, I might carry my own plate over to the sink. Such a servant, such a servant. No, and, and you know, we, we begin to think these ways and we begin to process that. And those are male images, ladies fill in your own blanks. But what we think is that if I just change some aspects of my behavior and once in a while on a whim, sacrificially do something that's servant-like, I will have done what Jesus says in this passage. Nothing can be further from the truth. He's not asking us to modify our behavior. He's asking us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in Christ and to be conformed to the image of Christ. And to have the clear understanding that I've been made alive together with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And so therefore, I serve not because it is an act of behavior modification. I serve because it is in the character of my Savior to be a servant. That's who I am. That's my identity. Well, aren't, aren't you forgetting that we're heirs of the throne and we are we are those who are going to be citizens in heaven and that he's preparing places for us of grandeur and glory. And all. I'm not forgetting any of that. 
And Jesus never forgot who he was in the entire process of his humanity and while he was here incarnate, but he still understood humble servanthood from a very practical point of view. So what does that mean? That means that we need to see why he would willingly engage in such humiliating behavior. What was it that prompted him to do that? Why would the king of glory, why would the creator of all things be willing to do those kind of things on our behalf? Well, let's be frank. Uh, There's no way we can explore the end of the concept of the topics of the ideas of what would prompt the, the mind of God to do what he does. We, we can't be so audacious to think that way. So let me suggest that there are at least a couple of things that come to mind this morning that we need to at least process these two out of the myriad of things we could look at. One of the things that would answer the question, why would he do that? Is very simple, basic Sunday school information. Nothing new this morning, folks. Sorry, this is not a clever attempt to wow you with brand new doctrine. The simple reason that he would do this for us is because he loves you. What else you got? Oh, you're, you're finished processing that? <laughs> the king of glory and the creator of all that is loves you. In verse one of this passage, it says that he loved his own to the full extent of his love. How much is the full extent of the love of Christ? Simply, a lot. The, the songwriter says the oceans were they filled with ink and every stalk were straw and they were a stylus in the writer's hands could never, with all of that, express adequately the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of God in Christ Jesus. Never. And so he wants us to understand, look, this is, this is something that God is doing because of his great, great love for you. In a few chapters later, John chapter 15, he says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus is doing. He was like, well, no, he's just washing their feet. Well, let me finish. Let me finish. What else does he say? Romans chapter five, verse eight, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, and changed our game plan at all. There'd been no behavior modification at all. There was still sin in our lives. God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a very simple picture here. Christ washed the feet of his disciples by a love that compelled him to do so. Now, did this just spring up on his mind? You know what? This is a kind of a crazy situation here. We're in a rented room. There's no master of this house. There's just me and these 12 guys. If there were a master of the house, there'd be a bondservant or a slave or somebody who was assigned the responsibility of washing feet. There's not anybody like that here. Jesus looks and discerns that there is a need in the room and he begins himself to take it upon himself to wash their feet. The dirty feet that have just walked through the streets of Jerusalem to get there. They're now sitting down to a meal where those dirty feet from one guy are right up against the face of dirty feet from the next guy and the face of the guy is next. And, and he says, somebody's got to wash these feet. It's going to be a very unpleasant meal. Thaddeus wants you to do it. You don't ever get any credit in scripture. Come on. No, he didn't call anybody else. He just says that he rose from supper and began to do it. When was this issue resolved for him? Before he took the first step from heaven to earth. It had already been determined that he was going to come in order to die. 
He had already made the commitment that out of love, God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. Greater love has no man that he laid down his life for a friend. That is the picture. He came because of his love and he knew he was gonna die. Washing feet relative to the cross is not a big deal. Why? Because his whole life is wrapped up with that understanding. Son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Washing feet is already a, a, a foregone conclusion. It wasn't behavior modification. It wasn't, I will change my behavior here to match the circumstances. It's just who he was. And if we're in Christ, following him means that we become like he is. He loves his own to the end, to the uttermost. The second reason that that I suggest, this is kind of a sidebar, so we might kind of rush through this a little more quickly, but the second reason he does is this act actually models the incarnation from his knees. It it gives a sort of a snapshot of the incarnation. Look at verses four and five again real quickly, and just let me comment as we read through the the verses. Um, In verse four, he rose from supper. Hmm. Did he rise from his throne In heaven before he became flesh and dwelt among us. Yeah, he rose from supper at the table. Yeah, he got up from his heavenly throne. He laid aside his outer garments. Wait a minute, did not he empty himself yet without for a moment ceasing to be fully God? He emptied himself and became flesh and dwelt among us. Yes, he took a towel around his waist. Yet did he not take on human flesh and become one with us? He became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Yeah, we we see him doing that. We see him then pouring water into a basin. Did he not pour out his own life blood? Did he not then take the, that which was in the basin and apply it to that which was unclean and brings cleansing to those who were, did he not do that with his blood at the cross and apply that? After he's finished, it says, then he put back on his outer garments. Well, after the resurrection, what happened? The glorified Jesus is then glorified further in their sight and he ascends to heaven. And then what did he do? It says that in this place, he resumed his place at the table. Where's Jesus now? He's resumed his place on the throne, waiting for the Father. So that's a whole nother sermon. Get a copy of it somewhere. It's, it's a great sermon to just think through. I heard a sermon by John Stott on that topic years ago. And it's a picture that we can't get out of our minds. This is the Lord God Almighty on his knees, bowing in such a way that he is doing the unthinkable, the despicable, the act of absolute demeaning, slave-like behavior. And, and we're reading this and thinking, yeah, I get that. I understand. Do we really? Why did he do it? Let's just leave it with those two reasons because it is a vivid picture of the incarnation itself and the purpose of God coming to earth to be able to redeem sinful humanity by becoming one with us. What a glorious picture that is here. And then that great picture, the glorious picture. He loved them. He loved his own to the nth degree, to the ultimate expression of love. So he washed their feet. Now, the question then is begged, what does that mean for us? Why is this such a familiar passage? And why do we, we think we really know it so well? Uh, well, he's in essence saying to his folks, you, you've seen it, now go do it. You are becoming one with me, I'm a servant, that means you are too. The measure of whether we really have become servants, you've heard it many times, repeatable right here, The measure of your servant heart is how you act when someone treats you like a servant. I'm a servant of Christ. 
How dare they expect me to do that? Well, I believe you just acted out of character. If you truly are a character who is like Christ in serving in humility, you won't think it odd at all that he expects you to actually follow him onto his knees. And so we look at verse 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Got it? Okay, break, let's do it. No, see, some people look at that, and as a matter of fact, there's one denomination that kind of builds its identity on being a foot-washing people. And, and that's what they do. They see it as the third ordinance. You have baptism, Lord's Supper, and foot-washing are the ordinances of that church. They're not all wrong. You understand that? They, they limit it if they say it's just foot washing and then they treat each other like dirt. That's not what, what I'm saying. But if they limit it to just foot washing, they miss the point because what Jesus is wanting us to understand is you look around and find all kinds of creative ways of serving one another wherever their needs are. Look around and see how you can find a place to bow your knee in such a way that you are able to serve one another as one who has the identity of a servant. It's not unusual to be treated as a servant if you actually are a servant. So serving means, frankly, from Christ's perspective, behaving without any possible gain or advantage for yourself. That means that our motives are pure enough that we don't get anything out of it when we do it. It's called the principle of no advantage. Who wants that? At least I should get some recognition. Do they have plaques in heaven? Do we get an award? Do they have like a participation plaque at least, something to say that we did do that? No, no, it's the principle of no advantage. You don't get any credit for doing it. Years ago, uh, I preached through this passage in John 13 many times through the years. And one of the occasions when I was preaching on servanthood, referencing this passage and others, um, I made a statement that pastors are always making statements, but sometimes you don't really know whether anybody's gonna listen to you or do anything about it. And so I'd made the statement that, look, if you're not clear on what you should be doing as a servant, look around you, like Jesus did, they're dirty feet, I need to wash these feet. Look around you, find something that needs to be done, and then do it. Well, that's really profound. Find something that needs to be done, and then just do it. Don't call attention to yourself. Don't call a special church business meeting to get authorization. Just, Just go do it. And so that was a sermon, and you know, a month or so goes by and I'm after the last service of the day and I'm talking to people who are coming by after the service. And out of the corner of my eye, I see a, a friend of ours in the back of the old room, just going up and down the rows. Uh, some of you remember Glenn and Helen Arrow. Glenn was uh, getting caught up with age and, and his health was not the best. And, and I'm wondering what in the world Glenn's doing this. I'm talking to this person, talking to that person and Glenn's still going back and forth. And finally, everybody else is gone. I go back, Glenn, what in the world are you doing? He said, well, you remember that sermon you preached? That's trouble. (laughs) I don't even remember what I just preached, much less a month ago. And and what he says, he says, remember that sermon you said to find something that nobody was doing and then do it? Well, it seemed to me that after church every week that people were left bulletins all over the floor and in the seats and gum wrappers and and candy and trash and, you know, God forbid, wet Kleenex. And I mean, whatever stuff is there. And so he said, "Uh, nobody was doing that. And so I thought, you know, I can't do a lot, but I can do that. And so I hadn't noticed, but for the last month or so, Glenn had been staying after the last service, picking up bulletins. An older gentleman whose health was not able to do other things found it within his ability to bend over and pick up our trash. 
I was rather humbling. I didn't leave a bulletin on the floor for years after that. <laughs> and I hope you don't either, right? I said, well, we got a cleaning crew that comes in and do that. And he said, well, yeah, but we don't have to do that if we just all will. I can do this. Right now, Brian's with a team of folks serving Christ over in Central Asia. They didn't have to do that. They have a right not to go to Asia. We have a group of guys who comes in at four o'clock every Tuesday morning, cooks breakfast for the men who are coming for a Bible study. They don't have to do that. They have a right not to have to do that. We got people who are not here at Providence this morning because they're down in Eastern North Carolina working in unthinkable situations with mosquitoes the size of vultures and, and mold and mess. And some of them have actually been going down there since Matthew. And they were about to put the last coat of paint on the house that they've been working on for two years when Florence came through. They just went, you know what? Let's don't waste that paint. And they're back down there again. You don't even know their names. Years ago, I was getting ready to do a funeral of a dear friend of ours. She'd been here at Providence, served the Lord in so many ways. And she had a debilitating disease that took away her, her ability to speak. She couldn't, she couldn't do anything for herself. She couldn't cook for, she just couldn't do anything. And in preparation for the service, I found out that there had been about six to 10 ladies from this congregation every week for the last few years in her home. Wow. Reading the scriptures for her, to her, cooking meals for her family, singing hymns with her, just loving her. I didn't know anything about all that. It wasn't on the evening news. They were just serving because they're servants. Every week we have people who are in uh, assisted living homes and nursing homes and stuff, leading Bible studies and worship services. Uh, some are not here this morning because they're in the prisons leading worship there this morning. We don't know about these people, do we? Why? Because they're servants. They figured it out and they are operating on the principle of no advantage. They don't get any credit. As a matter of fact, after the first service, I saw one of those women who were caring for the the ill lady, and I said, aren't you glad I didn't mention your name? She said, you did, I killed you, in Jesus' name. You know, I mean, you know, it's why she didn't say that, but I mean, there was that kind of look. And you're thinking, you know, you don't want to be recognized, you just want to do it because it honors Christ. What a glorious picture that is for us to be able to see that. And so because you're a servant, you assume that serving means that no credit is due to you. Luke chapter 17, Jesus is telling the story about the servants. He says, does the master thank the servant because he did what he commanded him to do? No. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We've only done what we're supposed to do. There's no credit in being a servant. This is not fun sermon because you don't get any credit for it. If you do what he says, but see, here's the catch. Uh, after this morning, if you didn't know it before, you do know it now. And he says, now, if you know it, you're not blessed for knowing it. What's the blessing? In doing it. And that's what he says to us. You're, you're blessed if you do these things. So we see him saying, I'm inviting you to your knees, to the lowest place, to serve as I have served. A couple of hours later, we see Jesus kneeling again, but this time in the Garden of Gethsemane, on his knees praying and seeking the Father. I'm inviting you, my disciples, can you not stay awake with me for just a little while and pray with me? Come, kneel with me. Come, bow down with me. It's a humble posture saying that I don't have it all together. I need you, Lord. I call upon you. I cry out to you. 
Come join me at my knees, brothers, he's saying. And then we get to another passage in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus says there's another scene of kneeling coming. Not just kneeling to serve. That's important, and you need to be doing that. That's the picture here. You've seen me do it, now do it. The garden, praying, kneeling, serve. He said, but there's another scene in Philippians chapter 2. We've talked about the fact that he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and all that. But this is what else he says, starting in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, kneeling plays an important part in this whole life of Christ. We, we kneel to serve, according to this pastor, passage. We, we kneel to pray, according to the, the few hours after the passage we see. We, we kneel to worship, and we're going to join every tongue from every tribe, from every people in every age, kneeling before the one on the throne, declaring he is Lord. He's the Lord. And this Lord and master has called me to follow him to my knees. How can I, how can I not do that? I'm supposed to be a servant, and that's the calling that he gives me in Christ Jesus. So much more to say about that. But the bottom line is that he calls us to do what we know, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Most problems among Christians today can be attributed to the depth of knowledge and the shallowness of obedience. We know it, but we don't do it. You ask the average Joe out there in the street who doesn't attend church, would you consider going, well, not really. Why? Because it's full of love. No, hypocrites. What? People who say one thing, affirm verbally one thing, but they don't do what they say. Their lives are no different. We're not impacting the culture because there's a disconnect between what we know and what we do. And Jesus says, you're my disciples and you follow me when you actually get around to doing what you know. So how, how do we process this? We've got to take this away real quickly. So just some things to think about. Number one, if you hear this and Jesus is saying to you, take the low place, there might be a temptation for you to be kind of guilted into doing something today. So here's the, here's the thing. Responding to this kind of message that he's given us here from guilt is not going to sustain the attitude and the behavior of a servant. You're good for five minutes and then you're out. You you do one thing and think, done, I finished. No, it is not going to be guilting you into it that's going to make it happen. So some of you are thinking, man, that was just a real guilt-inducing sermon. Hey, it ain't my fault. I'm just reading you the Bible, okay? But, But guilt is not going to keep you there. If it starts you in the right direction, then by all means, be guilty. But that's not going to keep you there. Second thing we need to understand is that ignoring this message through rationalization and making excuses is never going to result in you actually following Christ to the low place. Well, I, I know Jesus doesn't mean me to do that. I mean, that just makes me a doormat. And I don't want to be a doormat. I would, I, he would never expect me to be a doormat. I'm a child of the king. I'll never. He said, well, no, no actually, he does expect you to do that. You can't rationalize it. You can't excuse it. You can be a servant. Find that place. And remember, 
You've been crucified. It's no longer you defending anything. You don't have any rights when you come to Christ except the right to serve the king of glory and the power of the spirit. So no, don't rationalize it. Don't try to explain away what God's called you to do. Just serve as a servant from the heart. Here's the last. If you actually have been given the mind of Christ, Christ himself will transform both your perspective and your actions. You will think like Christ does. You will survey the possibilities around you. You will be like Glen Arrow and you'll see what's not being done and figure out, I can do that. And you'll go after it with gladness of heart because you know that you have the mind of Christ, which was in Christ Jesus. So Jesus says, I want you to follow me. One day, it'll be to the highest places of glory. But right now, I want you to follow me to the low places. I want you to get into competition with each other, to outserve each other. And I want you to go hard at it, not with the mind that you're going to get anything out of winning that contest, but you're going to finally get to the place where you're serving so automatically, you never even think about it. It is just an unconscious act of a servant doing the thing that he never gets any credit for, or she never gets any credit for, because it's just what servants do. Christ says, now, come. Do you know these things? Then you're going to be blessed if you do them. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're not like that naturally. We're not even inclined to think of ourselves in ways that actually submit to the mind of Christ. We, we tend to exalt ourselves instead of humble ourselves. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the incarnation. Thanks for coming here out of your great love for us to model that grace and love in such practical terms, not just at the cross to give us new life and forgiveness for sins, but in that new life to be made new, that we are being transformed. And from the renewing of our minds, we are a new people who are identifiable in heaven as servants of God most high. And so, Father, open our eyes. The world around us needs to see authenticity. May it begin on our knees as we bow, kneeling in your presence, because, Father, that is where we're going to meet Jesus in a most tangible way when we meet him at the low place. Father, thank you for calling us to follow you into such a glorious adventure. And now, Lord, we come to that part of the service. We get to serve the needs of the church by giving recognizing that this too is an act of submission to you, an act of serving one another and serving the cause of Christ and enabling others to be able to serve you wherever our hands might be able to reach and wherever our prayers can go. And so, Lord, we want to give faithfully and fully and freely for Christ. Lord, make us servants as we are called by Christ to the low places. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.